see what happens there. Um, thanks for coming to church this morning. Can we shut that front door so I don't get the headlights coming in straight into my eyes? Everybody. Um, hey, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we are, we are thankful for your church. We are thankful that you are for your church. Uh, we thank you that you have generously given yourself to us. You've given us um, your, the mind of Christ. You've given us the spirit of Christ. We are, we've been made part of the family of Christ, and we're coming to you in faith in order to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Um, make us one with you, we pray. We, we ask, Lord, that as we, as we go to the, your word that is profitable for, for correction, among other things, and for reproof, knowing that 1 Corinthians is a, is a corrective letter, we want to come to you humbly, but also fully expecting a, a gentleness that we've, we've come to know and recognize in the presence of Jesus. Um, that if, if you are going to show us where we have fallen short, Lord, where we're eager to be lifted up by your strong hand, knowing that you have good things for us, knowing that it is your will to bring us to maturity, uh, knowing that you love us far too much to leave us as we are, um, but that you will continue to save us from glory to glory. And we look forward to that. We look forward to the fullness of salvation in you. So teach us, please, Lord. Let the Holy Spirit be our guide. Let your glory be our chief end. And let your word be illuminated and let it illuminate us. Let it be a light to our paths, a lamp to our feet. We love you and we ask that the results of our time around your word would be that we love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Starting in verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Amen. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Um, we're going to be here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll also be spending some time in, time in Galatians 5 too, so if you get bored, you can flip over to there. It's good stuff. Um, and then also in 1 Peter and James, but I'll tell you when you need to know. So, so Paul says... Uh, that he's writing to, to babies. <laughs> and I love babies. I think, I think they're great. I think everyone should get at least two. I think, I think that, uh, I am, I am, or six. I, I, I am, I am excited that in just a 
you know, a few short Sundays from now, we'll have babies crying in service. I think that's fantastic. Um, I heard from a pastor this week, if your church ain't crying, it's dying. Like, you got to have babies. You got to have, and I, that's fine. Like, I love that. Like, our, the, our old babies, and like, Iris was our last baby, and she's already an old baby. And then after that, they're like, the twins, they're going to be four this year. That's old babies. Like, the new smell is already worn off. And, and so we're like, I love that. I love that we're getting babies at our church. I think that's fantastic. And I think that you would agree, most of you, that when... That, that a baby that looks like a baby and acts like a baby, that's great. That's a joy. And I think we would also agree that an adult that acts like a baby is a tragedy. Um, now, an adult that, that, for whatever reason, cannot grow up, that's sad. Uh, an adult that will not grow up, that's disgusting. And, and this was the trouble with the Corinthians, of course. And at one time, when Paul was first in, in Corinth planting the church, there were baby Christians there, of course. And you know what? That's fine. That's fine. They're, they're, he says he spoke to them as babes in Christ. It's not bad to be a baby when you're one day old. That's fine. Um, but Paul says, I had to talk to you a certain way because that's, that's where you were. You know, that, that was the level you were at. Um, I, you weren't ready to speak in spiritual terms or mature terms. I gave you milk and not solid food, spiritually speaking. And again, that's okay for a while. He says, you are not able to receive it. That is the solid food, the spiritually mature material. But then he goes on and says, even now, <laughs> you're still not able. And he says, by, by now, when you should be growing up, you're, you're big kids now, but you're still carnal or immature. The immaturity that was present in Corinth was doing two things. It was manifesting itself in all the horrible, sinful behaviors listed in verse 3, envy, strife, divisions. And of course, we've already been looking at the problems that existed in this church. They had some issues to work out, right? And it was preventing Paul or the other apostles and teachers from being able to speak to them as grown-ups. Their immaturity, which revealed itself in carnal behaviors, kept them in spiritual infancy. They could not progress into deeper spiritual truth, deeper spiritual under understanding. Behaving like fools, uh, like envious, divisive fools, prevented them from receiving what, what James calls the wisdom that is from above, which is pure and peaceable and willing to yield. And, and James writes in James 3.13, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Remember all the Corinthians, they really cared about that wisdom and they said, we're the wisest people. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his work is done in the meekness of wisdom. That would be a great thing for the Corinthians to hear, and they would have hated it. Uh, the Corinthians who put so much stock in worldly wisdom while also shunning anything resembling meekness. Now, I say their immaturity uh, revealed itself in carnal behaviors, but there's more to it than that. Their immaturity was also caused by some of their carnal behaviors. Now, right here, I think we should talk a little bit about the simple mechanics of salvation. Okay, salvation exists in three tenses. You have been saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. When you place your faith in Christ, you are freed from the penalty of sin. You've been saved. This is shown in baptism, which is a one-time thing, death with Christ, burial with Christ, re resurrection with Christ. We call that 
justification. You are justified. Now, in, in the meanwhile, uh, you are hopefully growing in, into the fullness of the stature of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. That's the process of being saved. So you've been saved, you've been justified, but you're still growing, right? You, you have been saved, but you are currently being saved, present tense, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the constant application of the gospel in your lives. You are maturing, and that's good news. You are being transformed from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's great. During this process, you are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and while sin no longer reigns, it certainly remains. Like, it's there. You recognize it. You see it when it shows up. We struggle. Many of us, uh, you know, all of us struggle. All of us from time to time fail. But the idea is that we are gaining ground, however slowly. We are growing. And while we start out as babies in Christ, it is our deep desire to someday be toddlers, right? Like we want to we wanna grow up. One day we will be mature adults in the faith. And then after we pass through this life, through this veil of tears and shuffle off this mortal coil, we will be saved. As it says in Thessalonians, we will always be with the Lord. That's salvation. Salvation is union with Christ. All of Paul's letters are written to people who are in the second stage of salvation. They have been saved, and now they are being saved. Paul doesn't write any of his letters to unbelievers, though he, he gives sermons to unbelievers. We can see that in Acts. But he doesn't write any of his letters to unbelievers, and he doesn't write to dead people. So, all the people receiving his letters are in the process of growing up. And Paul himself writes as he says, you know, I haven't attained yet. He, he recognizes that he's an adult, but he's not, he's not all the way grown up yet. So what is the key then to maturity? We're all headed in the same direction. We have this objective of union with Christ. How do we get there? How do we see that we're growing there? And why do these Corinthians stay in the nursery, so to speak? How do we avoid staying in this state of spiritual immaturity? We don't want to be babies, especially when you see that ultimate salvation, ultimate maturity is perfect union with Jesus, then what you see is this immaturity. It's not just a cute little thing. It's not even just a sad thing. It's absence from Christ. It's a terrifying, terrible thing. I want to avoid it. And I think we see the solutions here in this text by avoiding the things the Corinthians continued in. That's the first step of seeking maturity. We can see parallel passages to support this in Galatians, James, and 1 Peter, which I'll lead you to in a bit. Um, now, we mentioned that the carnal behaviors of the Corinthians was the cause, in part, of their immaturity. In verse 2, it says, even now you are still not able, verse 3, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal? So it says, you're not able to eat meat, you have to uh, behave like a baby because of your envy, strife, and divisions. Um, carnal is immature, spiritual is mature. In Galatians 5, Paul is also addressing carnal Christians. He doesn't call them babies in Galatians like he does here in Corinthians, but um, for Paul, the two are synonymous, the, the spiritual infancy um, and the spiritual, um, that, that carnal lifestyle are the same. The Christian who is spiritual, walking in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a mature, maturing Christian. A Christian who is carnal, who is following after the flesh, is an immature Christian who cannot digest the, the, the grown-up food. <laughs> So in Galatians 5, Paul says, 
Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. This biting and devouring is the same kind of sin that was happening in Corinth. And he was talking about this freedom being used as an opportunity of, the, fl- of the, the flesh. In Galatians, Paul says this is the stuff of the flesh. In Corinthians, he calls it carnal. Same word in Greek. It's the same thing. This is how he describes a spiritual immaturity. And then in Galatians, he continues. In Galatians 5, 16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts, lusts against the flesh, lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You're stuck as a baby. Babies always want to do things they can't. Okay? And he says, you're stuck there. You're stuck just throwing a temper tantrum because you you can't grow up because you're in the flesh and not the spirit. We could go to Romans 7 to get more of that picture, but we won't. Paul gives the prescription for maturity here. He tells immature believers how to grow up. You walk in the spirit. Do things the spirit's way. Now, in case you missed last week's sermon, uh, I'd suggest you go back and listen to it because in it, we saw that Paul um, gave us a description of the mind of Christ. And he said that you are given the mind of Christ by the Spirit of God. And something we saw in that study was that for Paul, the mind of Christ was a mind of humility and personal sacrifice. In Philippians 2, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he describes the humiliation and the passion of Christ. That's spiritual. That's walking in the spirit. And of course, that matches up with James' definition of mature wisdom that we've been repeating from week to week. It's pure, peaceable, willing to yield. It's the exact opposite of the behavior of the Corinthians, the immature, carnal Christians in Corinth. Now, by walking in the spirit, Paul wrote in Galatians, we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. By walking in humility and love, and service to others, considering others as better than ourselves, we no longer behave like carnal Christians or spiritual infants. We start to grow up. Pastor Alistair Begg, he said it this way. He said, it is the decisive rejection of sin, ratified on the minute-by-minute basis throughout the course of our lives that produces the potential for maturity. It's making decisions in your day to walk in love towards one another. Galatians, uh, if you've kept reading in Galatians, you'd see that it lists the works of the flesh, the sin that is to be so decisively rejected, with the warning that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it lists the fruit of the Spirit and says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, those are the same problems that we've seen from week to week that the Corinthians were struggling with, the schisms, the divisions among them, the contentions. Okay, that was a lot of Galatians. And maybe you're thinking, I thought we were studying 1 Corinthians. Well, maybe we will someday, but we're going to go to James and then 1 Peter. Um, or maybe, yeah, so in 1 Corinthians, Paul has equated carnal Christians with spiritual babies. The same, same people. Galatians taught us the way to be mature, walk in the Spirit. The way, the way to not be a carnal Christian, you walk in the Spirit. What does that look like? It looks like rejecting the works of the flesh and continuing in the fruit of the Spirit. James says much the same thing in a slightly different way. How does someone become mature? James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This idea of the righteousness of God being produced is the idea of spiritual maturity. Um, Paul talks about planting, watering, and harvesting. The righteousness of God being produced is the same thing. It's that growth of righteousness from seed to fruit in your life. To get that produce, to, to be mature, to be a ripe Christian, be, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he goes on in verse 21 of James chapter 1. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. There's meekness again. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is all stuff the Corinthians needed to hear. Um, We know they weren't slow to speak. That was kind of one of the problems, right? They needed to hear this invitation to humility. We know they resisted meekness. They wanted to be in first place all the time at the expense of others but that's not maturity. Seek to be meek. Seek understanding between brothers, uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and then walk in obedience. This is how grown-ups behave. One more apostle's take on this before we go back to uh, Corinthians. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking... As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. There's the the weeding out and the sowing in, right? Stop behaving like that, which is what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, right? Where where envy, strife, and divisions are among you, you're, you're carnal. That's the weeds that need to be plucked up. And then there's sowing in. There's replacing the carnal things, the lust of the flesh, with the pure milk of the word. Peter uses the babies and milk analogy, kind of like Paul, a little bit differently. But the important part for, for, for Peter is, he says, you need to take this milk so that you may grow thereby. Grow up. And Paul says, you've been drinking milk for too long. You need to grow up. Babies are not supposed to stay babies. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, a friend of Lewis and Tolkien and the the Inklings, she wrote an essay called Strong Meat, in in which she argued that Christianity is a faith for grown-ups. And paradoxically, she took as as one of her key texts the famous passage that goes, unless you come like children, right? We all know we're to be childlike in our faith. But you know what what children the world over do without fail since time immemorial? They pretend to be grown-ups, that's, the, that's how they play. And, and, and Dorothy says, she writes, Peter Pan, if indeed he exists otherwise than in the nostalgic imagination of an adult, is a case for the pathologist. All normal children, however much we discourage them, look forward to growing up. And that, that's true. Like, if, if you want, you know, it's okay to be a baby in Christ when you're a baby, if you're new. But then you, if you come to Christ like a child, then it's this childlike desire to grow up and be like your father. So listen, before we go further in Corinthians, we have to take this as the tool for self-examination that it obviously is. And we got to ask ourselves a couple questions. One, the obvious one is, of course, am I, am I really just a baby? And then no matter what your answer to that question is, 
ask, am I still coming with a childlike faith? That is a strong desire for maturity. Do I, do I still want to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ? Do I want to be about my father's business and, and learn the trade? And do I, do I look forward to seeing family resemblances between me and Jesus? Am I growing? I know, you know, there's a couple ways you can get a faulty diagnosis here, so I want to be careful. You, you could say, a person could say, oh, I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty mature. I, I read the thick books, and my theology is not too shabby, and I've been faithfully going to church my whole life, so I think I know what I'm talking about. Um, how do you get along with other people? Because that's the standard by, of, for James and Peter and Paul about what spiritual maturity looks like. How do you get along with other Christians? And what does your life look like? Are there fruit, uh, are the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Is there unity between you and the rest of the body of Christ? Because that's the standard that Paul says for immature carnal Christians. Carnal Christians have envy, strife, and divisions. And, and of course, there's the opposite risk, right? Some of you may think, yeah, um, you know, I... I might just be the old baby. <laughs> I feel like I'm still going to the milk and I don't understand the big ideas. Like words more than two syllables, just give me the heebie-jeebies. I just don't like that stuff. Um, okay, all right, same standard. You may, you may think, yeah, I'm just, I don't understand stuff. I'm not good at reading, so therefore I'm a baby in the faith. Not necessarily. How are your relationships? Judge by the same standard here. There, there's a great way to diagnose your level of maturity. Are you good with your neighbor? How do you get along with others? For the Corinthians, their divisions were the evidence of their infancy. And then later, as Paul leads them towards maturity, through really the rest of the book, and the, the whole passage on the, the spiritual gifts and saying, you know, the Spirit is given to each for all, he shows that spiritual unity is going to be the evidence that they're grown up and that they're spiritual Christians. When... Um, when Paul says in verse 4, he says, For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. When you say that, are you not carnal? Remember, carnal equals infant. When, when they're putting artificial walls between Christians, and then they're just showing themselves to be babies and unable then to go on to the next spiritual level. And now he's, he's showing them how silly this is, how childish these allegiances and cliques really were. He says, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. He said, you know, remember there were contentions and there were these denominations kind of, or some were dividing from others because we like Paul better than Peter. And they're like, well, we like Peter better than Apollos. And they're like, well, Apollos is a really good teacher, so we like him. And the church was dividing according to these personality cults that they really invented. Like the per Paul, Peter, and Apollos could all go and hang out and be just fine with each other. But the people under them wanted to divide according to these different camps. And Paul says, who are, who are these people? Eventually, he's going to say, they're nobody. But first, he says, they're just, they're just deacons. The word for ministers there is, is uh, diakonoi, where we get the word deacon from, which from the time of Acts uh, has, was an official role in the church. And they're saying, like, I follow the apostle Paul. You know, and he's like, actually, Paul's just like a deacon. That's it. That's all. He's, he's a deacon. Someone who, a deacon literally means someone who helps around the place. He, uh, it's, it was used for those who serve food. The first deacons, uh, they were waiters at tables, right? Stephen and those guys. Uh, it's basically a waiter. So Paul is saying, you think you have some sort of higher spiritual rank simply because 
you follow that guy who says those things and writes those letters and you're following around the guy waiting tables. That's crazy. Paul did not die for you. Apollos did not save you. The one waiting your table did not give you a place. He's not even the guy that cooked your food. Like, he's just bringing it to your table. That's it. And you're like, we follow that waiter. Like, no one goes to a restaurant for that reason, ever. The one waiting your table did not give you a place in heaven. He says, I'm not your king. Paul and Apollos, they were ministers through whom you believed, but not on whom you believed. Get your priorities straight. Now, this is good medicine. This is good medicine because part of the correction the Corinthians needed was simply to be reoriented towards the one who gives. Prioritizing Jesus, glorifying Jesus was the key to their good health and growth as immature Christians. And it was the key and would be the key to their unity. One of the reasons why these personality cults were just so ridiculous is that the personalities they were revering and forming allegiances around were the servants rather than the king. It's backwards and upside down. But another reason why these personality cults and divisions were such nonsense and such a counterproductive practice was that these servants were serving on the same team in order to reach the same goals. Where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. They're farming the same plot of land. They're working the same field. They're not in competition. When Paul says, I planted, you know, we still call it church planting, right? He did the original work in Corinth, the first work. But he was only there a year and a half. It's a long time for Paul, but not a long time for a church. After, there, uh, after that, there came Apollos. Apollos stayed uh, a lot longer than Paul, and his ministry is called watering. After the seed is planted, it takes a lot of watering before the harvest. Apollos did the work of nurturing the young believers in their faith, disciplining them, discipling them, as well as doing follow-up with the people who Paul might have shared the gospel with, but were quite ready to make a decision. So these are two different kinds of ministry. Same gospel being preached, uh, same place, same people, uh, same, you know, in, in Corinth, but different paces, different times, at different lengths of time. But whether the fruit is initial salvation or a level of spiritual maturity, either way, it's God who gives the increase. Every level of that salvation that I described, past, present, future, that's a miracle every time. You know, we, we recognize this in spiritual matters, in human matters, as willingly as we accept it with plants, right? You don't make the plant grow. You can plant it, and of course you can water it, but God and God alone makes it grow. Paul can preach, Apollos can teach, but it is the Spirit of the living God that brings life. It's a very good thing for each of us to remember as we consider our own testimonies, right? You think of the pastors of your childhood or the first preacher you heard after you got saved. Um, that pastor was planting or watering. Or maybe it wasn't a pastor at all. It was a friend or a relative or a complete stranger who shared the gospel with you. They were planting seeds or watering soil. But it was God who gave increase in your life. It was the Holy Spirit that made you be born again. And it was and it was and is the Holy Spirit that is causing growth in your life now. Now I, I know this as a 
preacher, there has never been a sermon that I've preached that has ever caused spiritual maturity or conversion because that's not the way it works. I scatter seed and I give water. But if anything of eternal value is going to come from what I do, it's because of the book that he lets me use and the author, right? He gets all the credit. He can and does use sermons and preaching. God has determined that the preaching of the word is the means by which the seed and the water is applied. But again, whether we're talking plant growth or spiritual growth, there are miracles here that are simply out of our control. Give thanks to God for whatever growth he has allowed to happen in your life. Praise God for that. Give him the glory. Praise God that through various gardeners, various farmers, you have been tended and cared for, and that the spirit of the living God used the word of those people and his word to divinely cause miraculous growth in your life. Praise God. But seeing God as the real cause of all spiritual birth and spiritual growth is key to to seeing that unity exists between Christian brothers. Remember, it's this disunity and division within the church that Paul is preaching against and correcting in this letter. All the people were putting too much stock in human servants, the waiters and the tables, rather than divine lordship. When Paul has to ask the ridiculous question in chapter 1, verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? He's showing us something of the nature of the problem in the, in the same way you see that it was not Paul, but Christ who was crucified for you. He's showing them that the, the growth they've experienced, the depth of maturity, which he's already seen has been very little, that's due to the Holy Spirit's work in their life, not Paul's, Apollos, or Peter, any of the others. This metaphor of Paul simultaneously shows God to be the most glorious, most exalted, most capable, and it shows servants like Paul and Apollos in their proper place. Who is God in this passage? He's the one who gives the increase. So who is the one who plants and the one who waters? Verse 7, nothing. Nothing. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters. Don't. Put your trust in people. Don't put your allegiance in people. Don't form your identity around people. The one who plants, the one who waters, they're nothing. This is an idea that he's going to go further into in verse 9, which we'll look at next week. But the point he's trying to make here is simply that the factions that can exist in a church, the factions that exist in Corinth, uh, that are claiming human leaders as the reason for their distinctions, they're just wrongheaded. Human leaders are nothing. And the human leaders, Paul, Apollos, etc., apostles even, they're all in agreement about their lowly state. Verse 8 says, now he who plants and he who waters are one. We get it. We're united. On the ground in Corinth, you had people who wouldn't want to sit together. They wouldn't want to eat at the Lord's table together. Who wouldn't want to go to the same church meeting because one would say, I am of Paul. And another would say, I am of Apollos. Paul is saying, Apollos and I are the same. We're one. We're not two different teams. We're the same team. Now, I think we should acknowledge that Paul and Apollos were different people who did things differently and would have had some disagreements. We also know that from Acts that Paul wasn't always the easiest guy to get along with, but they were still one. They were united in essentials. They were set towards one goal and they preached one gospel. They maintained the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that Paul writes about. The the leadership in the church had unity. The church needed to realize that and realize how important it was and how they needed to follow their leaders in this regard. 
Later on in the book, we're going to see how the Corinthians were really, really, really into spiritual things. Spiritual gifts, manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They wanted all of it. But they didn't use the gifts in harmony, in unity. Um, and Paul's going to correct that later on. You, you guys are familiar with Psalm 133. It's a famous passage. Where it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And we get that. We understand that. Unity is good. That fits with what Paul has been saying. But then the next verse of the psalm says, It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edges of his garments. And that part we understand less, I think. Aaron, of course, was the first high priest of Israel. And the oil that is running down his head, down his beard, down his vestments, is literally an anointing. That's what the word anointing means, an application of oil. The spiritual gifts that the Corinthians loved so much, it was a kind of anointing. What Psalm 133 says is, is, is that walking in unity is as pleasing to God as priestly anointing. Walking in unity with your brother is the most charismatic thing that you can possibly do. There is spiritual anointing when we walk in unity. Amen. There's a couple guys um, that you're going to meet in heaven, a couple guys from church history that I think show this with astounding clarity, and I love their story. I like, they have a lot of good stories together, but this is one of my favorites. John Wesley and George Whitfield. Uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, they're two of the most influential and effective preachers in the Great Awakening, um, both in the United States and in, in, in England. Um, Whitfield preached 18,000 sermons to around 10 million people, and that is definitely without stadiums or YouTube or anything. And he, he only lived to be 56 so he packed all that, all that preaching in a short life. That's, you got, that's several sermons per week. Uh, in other words, George Whitfield really, really cared about preaching the gospel to as many people as possible, and he was pretty good at it. Uh, John Wesley had him beat, though. John Wesley preached upwards of 40,000 sermons, the higher number partly due to the fact that he just lived longer than Whitfield. But John Wesley traveled uh, upwards of 250,000 miles in his preaching career, by foot or on horseback, and that's before trains, planes, and automobiles, or Uber. And these, uh, these two men preached a lot at the same time. A lot of people got saved because of their preaching. And they knew each other, and they disagreed about a lot of things. Uh, for one, Wesley was an Arminian, Whitfield was a Calvinist. People still can't get along with each other about things like this, okay? They got into fights about these things. Wesley called Whitfield's position a monstrous doctrine, and later he just called it outright blasphemy. Uh, one time the two ran into each other, and Whitfield told Wesley that he had resolved to preach against whatever Wesley was preaching wherever he preached. And they shook hands and went their ways, okay? And he preached 18,000 sermons, so that's a lot of bad press you're getting, you know? Uh, they had stylistic differences as well. Wesley's meetings were more uh, Pentecostal in, in flavor. Whitfield did not like that. He thought that was just crazy stuff. And um, now knowing what you know now about these two men and conversations they've had, you would think that they would not have been real good friends. You would think that having these disagreements, they would have been the cause of much division and schism, but not so. They addressed their disagreements like people on the same team. And while holding to vastly different theological convictions and preferences, um, 
they held on to what was more important than their divisions. Listen to these words of George Whitfield. He wrote to John Wesley. He said, May God remove all obstacles that now prevent our union. May all disputing cease. And each of us talk of nothing but Christ and him crucified. This is my resolution. I find I love you more, as much as ever and pray God, if it be his blessed will, that we may all be united together. Uh, once when John Wesley was very, very sick because he did not take care of himself while he preached, uh, he, they, it was thought to be near death. George Whitfield wrote to him, he says, a radiant throne awaits you, and ere long you will enter into your master's joy. Yonder he stands with massive crown, ready to put it on your head amidst an admiring throng of saints and angels. And Wesley didn't die. He recovered, and Whitfield actually died first. And you know who preached at his fun funeral? John Wesley. And, and sometime after George Whitfield's death, a woman asked John Wesley, because they still disagreed about all the things they disagreed about until the end, okay? And this woman uh, comes up to John Wesley, and she says, we, we won't see Whitfield in heaven, will we? And Wesley said, no, we will not. And the woman was... Disappointed, I hope. Uh, I don't know. Maybe she was happy, but I don't know. But she, she went, you know, was, uh, she took that. And then Wesley went on, and he said, Do not misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. So no, we will not see him in heaven. Now, I imagine Paul and Apollos would have had a similar relationship. I, I mean, their theology would have been more in line with each other than those two men, I'm sure. But whatever differences they did have would have been completely erased by the knowledge that the one who plants and the one who waters are one. And then beyond that, only one gives the increase. The question at the end of this passage that we're forced to come to at the end of this passage is, is are you a spiritual infant or are you grown up enough to see the unity that you have with people? Uh, the people across whatever theological aisle you see as uncrossable, that unity, are you mature enough to see that unity is a reality, that unity is spiritual, that there's anointing with those who dwell together in unity? Are you mature enough to see that unity of the spirit and bond of peace is where we are called to walk. Your ministry, your ministry preferences, your non-essential theological convictions, none of these things ought to divide you from any soul from within your family. To borrow from the words spoken at weddings, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Um, rejoice, please in the work that God has done in your life, through whatever means, whatever preacher, whatever radio station, it's God who gives the increase every time. And then rejoice, please, in knowing that it is the will of God to unite you with the other members of Christ's church. And, and just as he has united his church and just as he has promised to finish the good work that he has begun in you, you will see to it that you he will see to it that you reach the spiritual maturity that is only known in love for your brother. This passage of scripture can be difficult sometimes because it's not really a feel-good passage, right? I mean, it's corrective, like as most of Corinthians is. At times, it can seem harsh. But you, what you have to see is that all of this correction, where Paul is saying, you're, you're, you're carnal, aren't you acting carnal? Aren't you still being babies? 
he's communicating all of this in the context of a loving family. Yeah, the Corinthians were little babies and they're not healthy, but you know what? He calls them babes in Christ. That's amazing. These are saints he's speaking to. Yes, the growth is slow. The sanctification takes forever. But holiness is promised to you. Maturity is guaranteed because Jesus died for your sins and ascended into heaven and ever lives to make intercession for you. You know, if you're, if you're wondering, what is God doing in my life? It's this. He is leading you into perfect unity with Christ. And the method, the way he does that is by leading you into a mature, perfect unity with his church. He is leading you to glorify himself through the love that you share with his family. Praise God that he has made us one and that he is making us one. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these mysteries. We thank you for the mystery of the unity of the body of Christ. Um, and we thank you that, that at, the, at the end of the day, you're the one who gives increase. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And we are your house, a holy dwelling place for God in the Spirit. We know that, that we can plant and we can water and we can hope and we can read and but you are the God who gives increase. It is your Holy Spirit that brings us maturity. We thank you that it is your will to let us grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. It is your will to bring us into perfect unity with the Son of God through his church. And knowing that it's your will and that you're asking for these things, Jesus, we have all the confidence we can have in saying, Jesus, make us like you. Make us holy. Let us grow up and resemble our Father. Show the world who you are through your church. Let the family resemblance be striking. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Bless us with these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.